So welcome to this episode of Bookable Space. We're your audio literary salon. In this episode, we're joined by Betty Bolte, who will be reading to us from and talking about her book, Becoming Lady Washington. Betty, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Evelyn. So let's dive in. I think by now everyone knows I love being read to. It's one of the things that brings me joy and that helps me connect with books and stories and with writers and with readers. And so just to dive in, I'm really curious about what was it for you that really intrigued you about Martha? Where did the idea come from to write this book? Um, Well, I had met an agent back in 2014 who was interested in having somebody write a series about the first ladies. And so it just seemed logical to me that I'd start with Martha Washington, who was our first, America's first first lady. And the more I read about her life and the times in which she lived, the more fascinated I became because there was so much more to her than what you learn about in history books. Um, even, I mean, unless you really delve into the, the colonial history and, and how things were done and why they were done and that sort of thing. She's a remarkable, a remarkable woman. And she navigated some pretty tough times, you know, going through the revolution and then the first presidency and being the first president's wife because that had never happened before. And she had to define that role. And she wasn't always happy about defining that role, but she did it nonetheless. So I, th- I think um, she, there were a lot of surprises in her, in her history. Um, the most surprising one being that she actually went, when the, when the army went to winter camp, George would send for her and she would get in a coach or get on a sleigh and she would take the eight to 10 day, um, eight to 18 days it took her to get from Mount Vernon to wherever he was uh, during the, during the war, during the fighting, no matter what the road conditions were or the weather conditions were, she went to him. So that's some love and dedication right there. I think you're right. There's a lot that we don't know. And it actually wasn't even until reading like the blurb of your book that I like, it was about her having like managed this plantation. And I never even thought of her as, um, I don't know. I've never thought about her as living on a plantation. And then I'm thinking like, so does that mean that she owns slaves? I've never thought about her life before George. I know that they owned slaves, but I, I think I would have thought that he, that was something that he's brought in to the relationship. Well, her first husband, Daniel Custis, um, ran, had several plantations that he that he owned and managed. And when he died, then she inherited them. She got them from him, including all of the slaves. So she had what were called dower slaves when she married George. So she brought her own slaves to that. Um, of course, he had his own also. But he was, a, he was wanting to get rid of them. He wanted to free them. He didn't want to have them anymore and but she didn't know how she would survive without their their work you know without them taking care of things she didn't she didn't know how she would survive so it wasn't until right before she died that she freed hers because they were um there was some concern about were they trying to kill her so that they would be free because they would be freed upon her death so they got a little antsy about that. There was a fire that they couldn't explain <laughs> in her part of the building and her part of Mount Vernon. So they decided to go ahead and, and free all the slaves. But um, they would have done it sooner if they could have done so 
without a financial impact, if that makes sense. I mean, they mm. had to reimburse the estate of the value of that of those people. I'm glad that's all over with. I'm glad yeah. we don't have consideration and concern anymore. But but they did, and that was that time period. And I'm glad that's done. But anyway, <laughs> it was hard to write that part and do it and and you know from a 21st century lens trying to make that make sense from Martha Washington's perspective. Um, I do know in, in her letters and all, she really thought of the her all of her servants as family, whether they were free or, or enslaved. They, she just thought of them as an extended family. So I don't think she thought of it as a being an awful thing, but obviously we do. So <laughs> trying to trying to walk and balance that, um, that was kind of tricky. Yeah, it sounds like it would be. Could we have a reading, please? Sure. This one is when she first realizes that her first, what ends up being her first husband, is interested in her. It's during her, um, what we would call a debut. Um, They called it a presentation to society in 1746 when she was 15. So here's, here's what I've selected for you. I made my way through the throng of guests to stand by the open window. A cool breeze bathed my cheeks, bringing the scent of dried leaves and the smoke of many fires to tickle my nose. Moonlight splayed across the formal garden and the buildings of the town in the distance. Naked trees stood starkly against the deep black of the starry heavens in the soft light. In a few months, snow would blanket the land, but for now the ground remained hard and dry, making road travel possible, if not pleasant. Aunt Unity had graciously invited us to ride to Williamsburg with her in a fine coach pulled by four matched black horses. Arriving at such a high fashion lent a different level of elegance to the ensuing events I hadn't dreamed of. Maybe one day I'd have my own coach and four to take me places. Turning my back to the window, I observed the crowd. Through the arched door to one side, I spotted tables surrounded by seated, card-playing guests. The music changed to a lively tune, announcing the beginning of the less formal English country dances. My parents eased through the crowd, stopping often to chat. They knew most everyone in the room as a result of their involvement in the colony's church and government. I surveyed the other guests, feeling part of the society in an entirely new way, not as a child looking through the window, but as an active member with my own role. Then my heart leapt into my throat when Daniel Custis separated from a circle of men, probably assemblymen of one rank or another, and strolled in my direction. What did he want? What would I say to him? Oh, how I wish my mother were at my side. I wasn't as ready as I thought. He seemed intent on me in a way he'd never been before. Not when I'd seen him at church or floating past the plantation in his schooner, or even when I accompanied my parents to Williamsburg for market day. I swallowed hard, clasping my trembling hands. When I'd been preparing for the ball, it never occurred to me someone like the man drawing nearer with each beat of my heart would take any interest. He'd make a fine partner with his sterling reputation and financial security. On the other hand, becoming involved with him would mean having to deal with his quarrelsome and volatile father. My skin itched at the thought. Where was the old man anyway? I skimmed the crowd, finally detecting John Custis, eyes narrowed, watching his son approach me. The man had a colony-wide reputation for his temper and vengeful attitude. I'd witnessed it at church on more than one occasion, given he and my father both served as vestrymen. No love was lost between them, either. Good evening, Miss Dandridge. Daniel greeted me with a bow. Congratulations on fascinating every man in the room with your dancing and your charms. How kind of you to say so. However, I cannot imagine you are correct, sir. I spread my fan open and moved it lazily back and forth, heat once more on my cheeks. 
acting as mature and grown as possible. Having something repetitive to do with my hands also calmed my sudden anxiety, but I appreciate the sentiment. Verily, I say, you bewitched the bachelors with your grace and pleasing manners. Daniel shifted his weight, subtly closing the distance between us. Now I know you jest. I espied a new intensity in his gaze. His nearness set my heart aflutter, stealing my breath for a moment. Where was your companion for the evening? He lifted a shoulder and let it drop. I have not the honor of a companion, but have arrived alone as usual. He shot a glance over his shoulder in the vague direction of where his father stood observing our conversation. Then his eyes returned to me, his lips curving into a seductive grin. I shall be honored if you give me the pleasure of a dance. I couldn't help but look at the older Mr. Custis. I was not at all surprised to note disapproval in his expression. My back went up, much like I'd seen the hunting dogs do when strangers approached the property, hackles standing away from their necks as a warning. I am not quick to anger, which proved useful in times such as this. A slow burn started in my stomach at the continuing frown from across the room. Despite his opinion, what harm would one dance possibly do? Daniel was a man who could make his own decisions. Lifting my chin to meet Daniel's gaze as much as show his father how much I thought of his opinion, I nodded. I'd enjoy dancing with you. He held out a gloved hand with a smile on his lips. Miss Dandridge? (laughs) I love the sense of personality that you've given her and this sort of um, standing up for herself and and I guess standing up to who will be her future father-in-law, though she doesn't yet know it. Right. So I'm curious, what were some of the challenges and also opportunities involved in writing about a real person? I'm really curious where you were free as a writer to kind of imagine and explore. Well, there, there are certain facts that are written down, you know, that are in, there, there are two biographies that I can find, one that's more reliable than the other. <laughs> um, so I, I, I was stuck to the facts as my um, guide for what I was going to write about. But there are gaps in the facts. For instance, there isn't anything written down about her presentation to society other than how old she was and where it would have happened. So I had to do a little more research to find out the actual location. Uh, but And then that scene I just read to you is all my imagination as to what she might have said. And the, the animosity, though, from John Custis toward everybody else is well documented. <laughs> he just did not, he was just bitter and he was mean and um, just, oh, he was just an awful person. <laughs> really. wow. I mean, after he died in his will, he dictated the language that had to be put on his tombstone by his son that, and if it's in, I have the language actually in the story. I don't have it in front of me right now. But it essentially said that the only happy time of his life was when he was single, before he got married, before he had kids. But And his son had to put that on his tombstone. And it's still there. I mean, I've been to the, the grave site and taken a picture of the, of the monument that's there, you know, the memorial that's there. So he was just an awful man. So I was trying to kind of foreshadow that in that scene. And... Um, the next scene that, I, that I'll share with you is also a fictionalized account of how George and Martha first meet, because we don't really know. We just know about when they met and approximately in what area they met. And so I just used my you know, poetic license to try and show something um, about her personality and her interests 
in the scene, even though it is fictionalized. But I do, I do, I have an author's note at the back of the book that talks about that being a fictionalized scene that we don't really know. So I try and, um, I really did try to stick as close to the, the Patricia Brady biography it was really well written. And I essentially used that as a roadmap to follow her life and all that, but I've fictionalized everything. You know, they don't, we don't know the conversation that they actually had a lot of times. Some of it's written down. Sometimes there's a, like what she said when, when George dies, you know, that, that was documented. So that's in there. But most of the, most of the dialogue is fiction. It's just what I envision, you know, would have, would have happened. Challenges abound when you're writing about a real historical figure, trying to make sure that it's accurate history. And um, I'm always big on trying to make it authentic so that the language sounds like the times and the people. And this this story ranges from 1746 to 1802. So you've got like 50 years, more, yeah, about 50, we'll say 50 years kind of, of history and changes in language and all of that that was happening. So that was a challenge as well. Oh, wow. Could we have another reading, please? Sure. This is, again, the first time she meets George. Um, She's a widow at this point. The rhythmic motion of the dapple gray gelding relieved the tension inside of me. March winds whipped the skirts of my riding habit and threatened to dislodge my darling hat, a beach cool gust. Grief over my husband's death eight months previous had eased, but lingered like an interrupted measure of a symphony. Clouds raced across the bright blue sky, resolutely obscuring the heavens. Birds flew high above, calling to one another as the weather changed from fair to foul. I turned to Nancy and Burwell, riding beside me on their bays. Both looked smart in their outfits as they sat their horses. Burwell had proved a good husband for Nancy. Time to head home before the rain arrives. I turned my horse toward the manor house. You just don't want to speak about Charles Carter anymore. Nancy winked at me as she followed my lead, Burwell keeping pace. He's besotted with you, the famously wealthy widow Custis. Burwell's stallion pranced and jigged with impatience at the sedate walk forced upon him. He said as much to me. I cringed at the thought of marrying Charles. Well, he was nice enough, charming, educated, and not in need of my money as an enticement to marriage. Three very good reasons to say yes, but I simply could not. If only his first two wives, may they rest in peace. Hadn't left him with a dozen children to care for, I might be more receptive to his overtures. I believe there's another reason you head for home. Burwell grinned at me, a familiar conspiratorial expression. What, pray tell, might that be? My horse paused to snatch a mouthful of grass when I kicked him on. Burwell chuckled as he calmed the stallion with steady hands. Why, the approaching time from when my compatriot, Colonel Washington, plans to wait upon you this afternoon. My cheeks warmed. From what you've told me, his curiosity is piqued by my availability. Yet he's a second-tier plantation owner and involved in the Virginia militia. Neither fact endears him to me. He's a tad younger than you as well, I understand, which may also put you off. Nancy paused to steer her horse away from mine. But the gossips talk about his magnificent personality and handsome features. Nancy's mare nipped at Burrell's when the stallion danced too close to her. I guided my gelding a little to one side as I considered the three animals. I suddenly recalled the daring day so long ago when I rode my horse up onto the front portico of Elsie Green. Jackie had dared me, and I had accepted the challenge, despite knowing I'd likely be punished. The wind that day held a hint of risk and danger, much like this one. Jackie's laughter floated in my memory, egging me on. 
The coming storm had blown up our horses' tails, and there was only one way to help them relax, something we hadn't engaged in since we were adolescents. I'll race you home. I leaned forward and nourished my gelding into a gallop. We flew down the winding lane, hooves pounding, wind whipping our hair. I let my mount blow out the friskiness the changing weather had caused in all of us. Nancy and Burwell's horses thundered behind me and soon were vying for the lead. I leaned closer to the whipping mane, tears blurring my vision. It had been far too long since I'd raced, and the exhilaration awoke with joy inside I hadn't experienced since before Daniel died. Being a proper lady required decorum, rather than the exuberant ruffled woman racing down the road. But oh, what fun I was having. I shook off any sense of guilt threatening to steal away the pleasure of the moment. I needed to laugh more, I decided, as the turn for home came into view. After all the worry centered on the legal aspects of an inventory and dividing the vast property equitably between me and my children, surely I deserved a little harmless entertainment. I don't know what I'd have done if that hadn't stepped in to deal with the many issues and decisions following my husband dying intestate. I glanced over my shoulder and saw Burwell lean into the race, his more powerful mount surging forward, passing me. Nancy's mare tired and started to lose ground against the two bigger horses. I kicked and my gouting started to close the distance to the stallion. Coming around the bend from the opposite direction, rode a tall white man on a gangly horse with a black man on a smaller one beside him. I judged the distance and our speed as we closed in on the pine where we turned for home. We'd make it before the strangers reached the tree, but only if we sped up. I kicked my horse and he surged forward right behind Burwell. Turning sharply in front of the tree, I glimpsed the shocked countenance of the tall stranger but didn't slow. With a whoop, we headed down the carriageway at the end in front of White House's manor. The wind finally won its tug-of-war with my hat, ripping it from my head and flinging it to the ground where it rolled and tossed into tall grasses. So be it. A hat would not cost me the race. I caught up to Burwell, his coattails flapping with each stride and gust, our horses nose to nose. Then my gelding faltered, stumbled, pitching me up his neck. I fought for my balance and managed to keep both feet in the stirrups as I clutched the mane and pushed myself back into the saddle. Burwell raced on, reaching the yard in front of the house with a whoop of triumph. Slowing my horse to a walk, I detected he was off on his right front hoof. I dismounted in a roll of skirts to investigate the problem while Nancy halted beside me, flushed and disheveled. Behind her, the newcomer rode up with carrying my dirty hat. I patted the sweaty neck and then rubbed the horse's nose. Sorry, I didn't intend for you to pay for my delight. Lifting the hoof, I saw the shoe had pulled away from the foot. One of the short, thick nails, which normally held the shoe in place, had worked free. Walking on such a sharp point would further aggravate, if not injure, my horse's hoof. Burwell, do you have anything to reset a shoe with you? Burwell trotted back the short distance and halted, swinging from the saddle. No, but we're close to the barn now. I'll pull it and we can reset it there. While Burrell worked on removing the shoe, I held the reins of both horses. The stranger dismounted and strode toward us, his horse trailing behind him. He stood tall, taller than most men, likely more than six feet. Burrell, we, we appear to have company. Something about the man's expression captured my attention, so I could not look away. Burrell stood, brushing his hands off on his breeches as he grinned. Colonel Washington, it's very good to see you. Allow me to introduce the ladies. Yeah, so I mean, she was such an avid horsewoman, and she, but she and her brother Jackie pulled pranks all the time, like riding up onto the front portico of the of Elsing Green, her aunt's property. So I just wanted to share that kind of the um, the lighter side of her personality, you know, a little more daring side of her personality. Yeah. I think you do a wonderful job of bringing her to life for readers, because um, like you said, a lot of us don't know or and haven't even imagined, um, let alone researched, what her life might have been like. And so I really appreciate that you've done that in such a way that 
does give her personality and, you know, keeps mm-hmm. us curious about her. Yeah, she's really a fascinating woman. There's, there's so much, there's so much in this book that, <laughs> and that comprise that goes into like really depicting who she was and the kinds of, she had a lot of grief that she dealt with. She, there was an awful lot of death in her life, you know, from family members and friends. And um, I mean, at, at one point, um, I think she was 32 and she had a seven-year-old sister who died. So, I mean, and her brother Jackie dies, and, you know, when, when he's still young. So there was just a lot of grief that she had to deal with. And I think that um, strengthened her, it strengthened her faith and it strengthened her um, basic personality so that she had compassion for others when they were suffering. I think that leads really nicely into my last question, um, since I'm only allowed to write. And I say this as if I'm not the one who set this rule, but um, since I'm only allowed to do three questions, <laughs> my last <laughs> one is what is one thing that you found out during your research that really intrigued you and you know really interested you, but maybe there wasn't a place for it in this particular book? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, there was there was a lot of work being done on Mount Vernon during the American Revolution, and I kind of touch on it a little bit. But since Martha wasn't directly involved, I didn't didn't get to like include a whole lot of it because it was more what George was doing and how he was managing the property, even though he was an absentee landlord because he wasn't there. And when he left, he left Mount Vernon in I think it was um, May of seventeen seventy five to go up to uh, Philadelphia for the Continental Congress, where they decided that they made him uh, commander-in-chief of the Continental Army at that point. From that point until the fall of 1781, he did not go back to Mount Vernon. So that's, that's a long time when you're a property owner to not see your own property, especially when you're having renovations done and that sort of thing. So he had other people overseeing it for him, but he didn't like the way they were doing it. So <laughs> there was a lot of contention there. But that that's one aspect I wish I could have put in a little bit more to show the evolution of the building of the property of Mount Vernon. Yeah. But that was because there's so many, so many well, I'm I'm into all this stuff, you know, I'm into <laughs> all the history and the just the decisions of what kind of decorations, what kind of um scroll work on the woodworking, you know, and how they did it. I just, I just, architectural details just fascinates me. So if I could have done a little more of that, that would have been nice. Oh, maybe next time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) You're like, oh, probably not. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Well, you know, like I say, Martha wasn't involved in all that. So this story is written from her, from her perspective. It's in first, and this is the only book I've ever written that is in first person. Um, most of them are third person close point of view. And, and this is the only one I tried writing it in third person close and it just didn't flow. I, I really felt like I had to almost literally become Lady Washington in order to tell her story. So, yeah, I was kind of channeling my mother-in-law who was a general's wife. My, my husband's dad was a general. And um, I, I knew how my mom my mother-in-law, my mom, viewed the world, you know, how, how she interacted and how she, how she acted when she was the general's wife versus when she was my mom. <laughs> there's a, there's a difference. 
difference, you know, in carriage and presentation of who you are and what you're doing. It's a different persona that she would put on for that. So I was kind of kind of channeling my mother-in-law as I wrote this. But, wow. How cool is that? Right? Could we have one final reading, please? One final reading. This is actually from that May of 1775 when they suddenly realized that the revolution is coming. And this is set at Mount Vernon. Some of, some of the, there are some servants that are in here. So you'll hear their names. So it starts off with, Doll, would you please put together a tray of refreshments? The kitchen bustled with the servants hurrying to prepare the food necessary for meals later in the day. Yes, madam, would you want biscuits as well? Doll wiped her hands on her apron, leaving smears of apple juice as evidence of her labors. Something to compliment this afternoon's light dinner? A fine idea, thank you. And have Richie bring a table out to the lawn overlooking the Potomac in a while. Yes, madam. I turned and left the kitchen to return to my guests. The house teemed with visitors on the eve of the next Congress. I had been busy keeping everyone fed and entertained. Breakfast had been a crowded affair with several of my husband's acquaintances stopping in. Most of them had continued on their way by late morning. George had gone outside to converse with Major Horatio Gates, now retired from service. Our good friend and neighbor, Brian Fairfax, had also come to stay the night. I could only wonder who else might join us before the day ended. I walked out the door and crossed the lawn to where the men enjoyed the early May sunshine while sitting on the bank overlooking the river. Breachy passed me, lugging a table out to the group. He was followed by Mulatto Jack, who laid a cherry cloth on it so Dal could set down the tray of chocolate and coffee, as well as a plate of biscuits. I joined the group, resting my weary feet for a few minutes. Apparently, I'd interrupted a rather intense exchange. We must do something to end the siege of Boston by those New England troops. The city cannot last much longer. Tension rolled off of Major Gates, belying his relaxed pose. Major Gates, or rather Captain Gates back then, had known George since they fought together in Braddock's defeat in 55. He'd also fought in the French and Indian War before returning home to England to retire as a major. Three years ago, he and his family decided to move to America, to their pretty farm, Traveler's Rest, on Apacon Creek. While not far from our home, we didn't often have the pleasure of his visits. With the recent skirmishes at Lexington and Concord, I was not surprised he made the effort to come speak with George on the situation. The matter is to be addressed to Congress next week. George regarded each man in turn. We must consider every angle, every option open to us before we land upon the right course of action. Agreed. If anyone can assure all the possibilities have been identified, it will be you, my friend. Brian puffed on a clay pipe, the smoke rising lazily on the gentle breeze. I fear we may end up fighting again. Major Gates crossed his arms over his broad chest. My retirement may be coming to an end. George nodded slowly, his eyes troubled. We will work to avoid a full rebel rebellion by striving for a tactical solution to the impasse. Do you believe such a solution is possible? Brian asked. Providence will show us the right course to follow. George gave me a look that made my pulse race with apprehension and then turned back to his friends. We must defend our rights against tyranny. Major Gates huffed and shook his head. We may end up fighting against our old commander, General Thomas Gage. Never thought I'd be opposed to the commander of the British troops. It's quite a daunting prospect. Barely, but we shall do all in our power to succeed in our endeavors, including fighting against our friends who take up the king's cause. As the sun set, the group moved inside to continue their dialogue until it was time to light the candles. Then, as was our custom, we retired to our bedchamber bed chamber for the night. The next day brought more visitors and saw Brian depart for his home. 
our friend and one of many Lees in the colony, Colonel Richard Henry Lee and his brother Thomas, as well as Colonel Charles Carter arrived in the afternoon. Colonel Lee would accompany George on the morrow to Pennsylvania. As had been occurring all week, the men settled in to discuss the state of affairs with regard to the recent battles and the British response. Colonel Lee was a longtime acquaintance who had served as a Burgess along with George, and also been a delegate from Virginia for the first Congress, and again for the second. His sister, Anne, was married to George's brother, Augustine. I didn't know much about the other men, having infrequent contact with them. I did know that Colonel Carter served as a Burgess, representing Stafford County, and so George had more occasions to be in his company than I had. My role was not to know everything about everyone, but to ensure everyone had what they desired. I also helped Billy with gathering George's things together for the imminent trip, adding a few last-minute items I thought he required. I had been lonely for my husband while he was away, and I had to tend to matters at home. I hoped he would not stay away any longer than necessary to come home to me in a matter of weeks, unlike the last time when he was away nearly two months. Naturally, I did not share my feelings with anyone else, knowing he was well aware of my preferences. I stood on the front step saying my farewells to my husband the next day, on the 4th of May. I shall miss you more than I could convey in my letters. Write me often, my dear, as I will write you. George held my upper arms for a moment, studying my face as if to fix each of my features in his memory. Despite the servants passing by, I wanted nothing more than to be held in George's strong embrace. We had no way of knowing the end result of the treasonous actions, when he'd return, or, much worse thought, if. The king could order his hanging, after all, for participating in the dangerous rebellion. After he rode away on such a harrowing mission, he may never see his home, his family again. He must have felt the same. He flicked a glance at Billy, who moved to stand in front of us, facing the carriageway. George pulled me to him, wrapping his arms around me and holding me tight. My cheek pressed against his coat, the beat of his heart reassuring in my ear. I clung to him. I wished he'd never let go, that he not leave. But my wish remained pure fancy. He'd been called to duty, a summons he heard and could never deny. So where can we buy or find the book? This is like if there's a bookstore that you really want us to try, an indie publisher, whatever it is, um, where would you like us to go to buy the book? Um, you can get the, the print book. You can go to bookshop.org and you can order it from that. And the proceeds from that from using that site then benefits other independent bookstores. I don't know if it's outside of the U.S. or not, so I'm not sure of that. Um, of course, you can order it through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstone. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm trying to remember names of... You can you can order it from any, any okay. of your regular bookstores. Um, and of course, the, the ebook is out there also. It's also, it's the only book I've written that's in hardback. So you can buy it in hardback if you want it as a keeper, you know. So. Wonderful. Betty, thank you so much for, for joining us, for reading, and also for your generous answers. It was such a treat to have you and to talk to you about becoming Lady Washington. So thank you so much. Thank you. And you can read excerpts of any of my books, including Becoming Lady Washington at my website, bettybolte.com. So you can read more about it. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Thank you so much.